the Gospel according to Luke. In the first video, we explored Luke's portrayal of John the Baptist and Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel and of God's promises told in the Old Testament scriptures. We then watched Jesus launch his mission and bring the good news of God's kingdom to the poor among Israel, people of low social status and also people who are outsiders. And Jesus taught that his kingdom is upside down. It's a reversal of all of our common social values. This section culminated with Luke showing us how Jesus was a new Moses about to bring a new exodus by his death in Jerusalem. And so we come to the large center section of the book where Jesus leads his newly formed Israel on a journey to Jerusalem. This part of the book consists mainly of Jesus' teaching and parables given on the road to the various people he encounters, mainly his growing group of disciples. And in this way, Luke portrays following Jesus as a journey. It's something you do where you learn as you go along life's path. So first, Jesus invites his disciples into his mission as he sends a wave of them to go ahead of him, announcing God's kingdom. So being a disciple right from the start, it means participating in Jesus' kingdom mission, making it your own. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we're reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of us are in some way endlessly busy, even if you're retired. I have actually found over the last few years, most retired people I know, it's like they retired and got more busy than they were when they had a job. Um, you're doing it wrong in case you didn't know. That's not how it's supposed to go. But we will always have something going on. As soon as we complete one task, another one demands our attention. We'll line up project after project after project. Um, and we might complain about it from time to time, but actually most of us like it, don't we? I mean, we, we like being busy because it makes us feel important. It makes us feel successful. Um, and it definitely makes us think that other people think we're important and successful. And so we constantly do things. We worship at the altar of productivity. Do you know how many times in a day I'll stumble across an article that's titled something like 21 hacks or products or tips to boost your productivity, right? By the way, none of them work. <laughs> Even in the church world, we fall victim to this. We, we like to see our church calendars crammed with events. 
right? We love to drive by our church and see cars in the parking lot on weeknights. We don't care whose cars they are. If we could, we'd rent some cars and just park them there. (laughs) Don't think I haven't thought about it either. Churches will fill our calendars, will fill our buildings with events and people that have no connection whatsoever to the people who worship here on Sunday morning just because we like the feeling of a full calendar and a full building. But what would happen if Jesus told us that none of that mattered? What if he told us that in our craze for busyness and productivity, that we actually missed out on everything that's really important? I'm going to guess that by now uh, many of you, if not most of you, have seen something in the news or on social media or perhaps through a friend about the revival that's been happening in Kentucky and then spreading across college campuses. Um, It started on February the 8th with just a regular chapel service and a very simple prayer at the end of the sermon for God's love to revive them. And actually the guy who gave the sermon thought it was a dud. He texted his wife afterwards saying, I don't think that one landed at all. Not good. No one responded. Except at the end of the service, uh, around 20 students stuck around to pray. And they kept praying, and and they they felt the Holy Spirit moving them to, to confess their sins to each other and to repent. And then more people came, and then more people prayed, and, and the worship never stopped. And this was a true movement of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing outlandish or weird happening. No one was making weird noises or grabbing the snakes to put them on people's heads, right? None of the weird stuff was going on. None of the, none of the big extravagant showmanship or drama that we associate with revival. It was quiet and sweet and peaceful. And oddly enough, a key feature of it, just like a key feature of a lot of Jesus's interactions with people in the Gospels is people feeling moved to confess and repent of their sins. Not because they need to feel guilty or because everyone needs to know what they did, but because they represent sometimes a roadblock between us and the Spirit. And the whole thing became student-led, and it was simple, and it was quiet, and it was radical, and it's spreading. It's made it all the way to College Station already. It's probably going to keep going for a little while. Now, as it happens, I'm connected sometimes through various degrees of separation with people who are involved with Asbury University and with the seminary. And by the way, those are owned and operated by the Free Methodist Church. So they're Methodists, so we we count this as a win for us, okay? Um, And in the process, I've, I've been reading and hearing what people who are physically there have said it's like. And the one thing that everyone has said is this. You walked into the chapel, and the peace of it all just hit you immediately. One person said the atmosphere was different. You walked in, and it actually took you a while to breathe again because you had to adjust to this space where the presence of God was so powerfully present. And once you did, the sweetness of it all, the peace of it all would just wash over you, and it would refresh you, and it would strengthen you. And here on a college campus, no one was worried about making sure the students got out to get to class on time. No one was worried about making sure that they had time to study or or get their homework done or do whatever other of the endless lists of tasks that college students and professors have to do. 
They just wanted to sit in the presence of God and soak it all in. Mary and Martha live in a small village just outside of Jerusalem. And, and um, you'll see in other gospel stories, Jesus never spends the night in Jerusalem. He goes there during the day, and then he leaves to go stay in villages outside. And very often, it seems, he stays with, with Mary and Martha. So quite likely, he's going to spend the night in this house. And Martha is distracted by all the serving, right? She wants to do something really special for Jesus. Specifically, she wants to show him as much honor as her guest as she can. That's very typical for their culture, right? You want to honor the guest. And, and in this case, she's welcoming a respected religious teacher in her home. It's a big deal. So she'd be cooking tons of food, probably in very elaborate dishes. She'd be serving everybody, making sure everybody's needs were met. She's probably been slaving over the oven all day, and very likely she has gone to great expense to buy the finest foods that she can afford. Because in that culture, the meal that you provide for your guests is a clear statement on how highly you honored them. And to have a famous rabbi staying in your home is as good as it gets. So she's doing exactly what's expected of her. She's honoring Jesus the best way she knows how. She's lavishing him with love and respect. And her sister, meanwhile, you know, we read this and we think, oh, she must have just thought her sister was being lazy and she's annoyed by not having help. But what her sister is doing is actually scandalous. They live in a world where there is a clear hierarchy between men and women, and the roles of men and women are clearly defined. And, and ladies, I'm going to preface this by saying, um, I don't believe the things I'm about to say. These are not my beliefs, okay? And, and, and to be even more clear, these aren't the things that the Bible teaches about men and women. This is a purely cultural thing. But the belief was that women were the inferior sex. I mean, it was explicitly taught that they were mentally inferior than men. And on top, so they weren't allowed to go to school, they weren't allowed to learn, they weren't allowed to, to learn to read. There's no education happening for women. And it's thought that women represented the ultimate temptation for men to defile themselves. And so they had to behave at all times with extreme properness, right? Their hair had to be covered in public at all times. They couldn't even interact with a man outside their home. If you want to look at a, uh, at a culture that gives you a modern example, um, the, the, the rules about the behavior of men and women in conservative Islamic countries are more or less the same as the rules were for ancient Judaism in Jesus' day. They're incredibly similar. They line up. That is how women were expected to behave in this culture. In fact, most rabbis wouldn't even speak to their own wives in public. It's that serious. Now, Mary and Martha don't appear to be married. No mention is ever made of their husband. They seem to live together, and that means that they live with their brother Lazarus of raising from the dead fame. Oh, slow burn on that one. Okay, that was nice. <laughs> so Lazarus is the one who would have invited Jesus into, into their home because it's his house, right? I mean, he owns it. He's the man. It's his house, although it's Good to notice that Luke doesn't call it Lazarus' house. He calls it Mary and Martha's house because, like most men, he recognizes who's really in charge. <laughs> so the expectation here would be that 
Lazarus and Jesus and maybe a few of, of Jesus' male disciples, it's not clear if they're with him at this point, at this event or not, um, would have sat and, and, and visited with each other and eaten while the women served them. And, and then when they were done serving, the women were supposed to retreat to their own part of the house separate from where the men were. And that's not what happens. Martha does actually busy herself with all the cooking and all the serving and observing all the rules of proper behavior. Um, but to her horror, her sister stays with Jesus and the other men. And so Martha's comment here, um, it, it's not just that she's an exasperated sister who's frustrated that her, her sister has not helped her at all. There's, there's something deeper going on. She is appalled and horrified by her sister's improper behavior. And she's embarrassed by it. And the funny thing is, um, she's probably actually embarrassed that Jesus is letting it happen. That's why she talks to him and not Mary. And so this comment is this very thinly veiled rebuke. What she's really saying is, Jesus, you know it is not proper for you to let my sister sit here with you like this. People will talk. People will assume that you two have some sort of inappropriate relationship. You need to tell her to come with me and start acting like a lady. The text actually says that Mary is sitting at his feet. That is not a phrase that describes where she is actually sitting. It's, it's an idiom. It's, it's a cultural term. And you say that someone is sitting at someone else's feet when you are describing a disciple and their rabbi. This, this story is an explicit statement that Mary is one of Jesus' disciples just like the men are. She's learning from Jesus. And given that she would be illiterate, there's a decent chance that Jesus is sitting there teaching her how to read so she can read the scriptures on her own. This is something we miss when we read through the New Testament quite often. You'll read letters of Paul where he says things like women should learn in all quietness and submissiveness, and then we get really angry um, because I don't know if y'all picked up on this, but there are not many submissive women in this church. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and thank God for you all. Um, I'm not just saying that because I have to. Um, but what we miss in that statement is that Paul says women should learn. A radical statement for someone who lived in a world where women were barred from every educational institution. Where the prevailing philosophy of the day, whether you were Jew or Greek or Roman, was that women were subhuman. Women should learn. This is part of the radical gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of it all, Martha is horrified because this is totally improper. This is not how women are supposed to behave. It's definitely not how respectable rabbis behave. And since it's all happening under her roof, this brings shame on her too, which is quite a big deal in that culture. She wants it to stop. And Jesus says no. Martha's distracted by many things, but Jesus isn't talking about all the cooking and the serving that she's doing. He's talking about everything else. Martha is distracted by worries about what others will think. Martha is distracted by 
thoughts of her sister's reputation and Jesus' reputation and her own reputation. She's worried all of a sudden that this Jesus guy isn't who she thought he was. And Jesus says to her, no, you're worried about all the wrong things. Mary has the right idea. What really matters is learning from me, hearing my voice, sitting in my presence and letting yourself be transformed by grace. These things are so much more important than the stuff you're worried about. It all boils down to me, Jesus, sitting at my feet is the one thing that's needed. And let's not miss something important here. Martha's love for Jesus is not just genuine. It's arguably more fervent and more passionate than Mary's. She is going all out to serve Jesus, to make him feel special, to show him as much honor and respect as she possibly can. And we'll see later on in the Gospels that when he comes to raise Lazarus from the dead, Martha's the first one to run out and greet him. It's not that she didn't love Jesus. It's not that she missed that particular point. And Jesus' praise for Mary isn't a criticism for Martha. He's merely making it clear that the services Martha's providing are temporary and transitory. They won't last. What Mary is doing, sitting at his feet and listening to the word of God, is what will last. That's what's eternal. And we aren't always comfortable with this. We aren't always comfortable with the thought that, that some of the things we've, we've devoted our time and energy to won't last. We aren't comfortable with the word of God. It, it challenges us on deep levels. It exposes the darkest depths of our hearts. It dares us to change. And we don't want to. We don't want to give up the things that we think are most important in life, even if God tells us they don't truly matter. We don't want to put ourselves in a position where we have to rely entirely on God. So we busy ourselves as much as possible. We might even devote ourselves to serving others constantly, to filling up our lives with as many good works as possible, and in the process, without even realizing it, shutting ourselves off from the word of God. And Jesus understands all of that discomfort. He understands our fear perfectly. He lived as one of us, so he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty. He knows what it's like to have bills to pay. He knows what it's like to worry about whether or not there is enough money. He knows what it's like to have projects to complete and work to do. And he knows far better than any of us what it is like to read God's word, to sit in God's presence, and to realize in that moment that God is asking you to do something that absolutely terrifies you. And he knows what it's like to go against the grain and to reject the values of the culture around you while proclaiming a truth that might be hard to hear, even at great personal cost. And he knows what it's like to love unconditionally, even when that love comes at great personal cost. I think there's no doubt he experienced the temptation to turn a blind eye to the word of God and to focus on all the good things he could do in this life. Now think about this. He could have cured every disease if he wanted to. He could have ended hunger permanently if he wanted to. He could have done exactly what was expected of him and, and rallied an army and overthrown the Roman Empire if he had wanted to. 
All of those things were within his power. But he didn't. He held back. He did heal people out of, and out of compassion. He healed people. But, but at the same time, every miracle, every healing had a specific goal in mind. His miracles proved to people that he was who he said he was. But they were not the main event. His teaching was. His words were. His gospel was more important than anything else. His miracles established his credibility, his trustworthiness, his love for the people. But it was his teaching and his explanation of the scriptures and his way of living them out in his everyday life that truly made the difference. It was his presence and his wisdom that began the revolution. And it was his words and it was his teachings that ultimately led to his crucifixion and death. And none of this means that the other stuff doesn't matter. Service is absolutely vital. Christians have a clear, essential duty to feed the hungry, to care for the sick, to clothe the naked. We have a clear duty to be servants in the world, and that service is unquestionably a way of demonstrating the wondrous love of God in and through us. But we walk a fine line. It's easy to focus on service to the exclusion of the word. Because service doesn't challenge us. Service doesn't call us to repentance. Service can actually make us feel pretty good about ourselves, right? It can make us feel like we're doing something important, and very often it can make us feel justified. We can begin to think to ourselves that we've done enough good works to earn our place in the kingdom of heaven. That, that we've cared for the poor and the needy, and because we've dedicated so much of our time to the church, our good deeds must outweigh any sins. And the word of God will quickly show us otherwise. And there's pain there. there. There's pain in the realization that we can never do enough good to outweigh the bad. There's pain in the recognition of our failures to love God and to love our neighbor. There's pain in the recognition of just how wrong we can be and of just how far short of the mark we fall. And that, by the way, is exactly how the Bible describes sin. The word used in the New Testament is hamartia, and it's a Greek word that is an archery term, and it literally means to miss the mark. But on the other side of pain, there is freedom. Because on the other side of pain, there's Jesus, welcoming us with open arms declaring us righteous based on his merits, not ours, telling us that we don't have to outweigh the bad with the good, that we don't have to fill our time with constant production and constant service because we're saved through faith in him alone. And so we're freed to serve from a place of joy rather than a place of obligation. Our service becomes a gift, not a duty, a joy, not a task. But this begins when we focus on the one thing that's needed, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to soak in his presence, to learn all we can from his teaching. And I'll tell you now, very often as people do that, they begin to feel the need to confess and repent, even lifelong Christians. And don't come to me and do it. It's not about that. It's between you and God. 
not because you need to feel bad about yourself or because you need to list all the things you, you know, or because you're informing God of things he doesn't already know about. But because so often it becomes a roadblock between you and the Holy Spirit. So often it holds you back. And so it's okay. It just means that you've got something blocking your way to the deep abiding peace of Jesus. The students who were at that revival in Kentucky and who were at the revivals at college campuses all across the country because it spread far and wide, they know exactly what Mary felt sitting at his feet because they did the same thing. We have a lot going on. Our church is in a season that is both busy and difficult. And it would be easy for us to get bogged down in the cares and worries of this life. We're worried and distracted by many things. But only one thing is needed. My friends, let's sit at the feet of Jesus together. And together we'll ask him to revive us with his love. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen.